Welcome to Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law, the show that provides practical insights and expert know-how on trending legal issues. No legalese, just expertise. With your host, Renee Karibi-White. Welcome to another episode of Thomson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. I'm your host, Renee Karibi-White, and today we're talking about the antitrust topic of competitor communications. This topic is relevant for organizations of any size and touches on some unexpected areas. Here to navigate us through that gray space is Janelle Wrigley, Managing Editor of the Practical Law Antitrust Service. Hi, Renee. Hi, Janelle. So Janelle has some very interesting experience. She worked with the FTC for a number of years after starting her career at Simpson Thatcher, and she actually worked in Istanbul, Turkey for some period of time. So welcome, Janelle. Thank you. We're talking today really about what kinds of conversations you can have with and about competitors, both internally and externally. And before we really get into the meat of it, I want to just set the stage. What are the rules that people need to be concerned about? It sounds like this is something I think people often think about in the context of just mergers, but antitrust really affects so much more. So just give us a little more background and stage setting for this conversation. Sure. Um, and first, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you and our listeners about competitor communications, which can be a tough issue for business people, even, even for lawyers to navigate. So I think it helps to set the stage, as you said, to talk about the different contexts in which you might end up communicating uh, with your competitors. And there can be an almost infinite variety of those contexts. One big category is planned exchanges with your competitors. You might, for example, be engaging in a joint venture with them, and you need to exchange information in order to you know, accomplish the goals of your joint venture. You might be participating in a trade association or an industry survey uh, where you're exchanging information for those reasons. There's also accidental exchanges that happen where you're, you know, sharing information with maybe employees of one of your competitors. You can think of scenarios, you might be friends with somebody who works at a competing company, you go grab lunch, you might be at a conference and you're chatting with people during the break. And so those are the gray areas we're really going to get into today. Let's talk about the general framework. So what are the rules? Who sets the rules? What are the rules and the regulations in this area? Sure. Well, the main rules come from the federal antitrust statutes. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about, uh, which is the Sherman Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act uh, for our purposes. The two federal antitrust agencies, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, they do a lot of work in enforcing those rules, and they also issue a lot of guidance. Uh, It could be informal or unofficial guidance that will help kind of navigate some of those gray areas um, or understand how these rules might play in different factual scenarios. And the courts, of course, are always issuing opinions that provide some meat onto the bones of of what you can and can't do. So, Janelle, in the big picture scheme of things, what do you really need to know about talking to your competitors? Well, the bottom line is really that you need to have a very good reason to be talking to your competitors. um, And that's a reason that should benefit consumers and be pro-competitive. And that you should be exchanging as little information as possible. Uh, And the main question to ask yourself if you're wondering whether a conversation or some kind of information exchange with your competitor 
is legitimate, you should really focus on what the nature of the information is that you and your competitor are exchanging. And the concern arises where it's competitively sensitive information, so pricing information, maybe about new products, things of that nature. If it's non-public information, so it's something that would otherwise be, be secret. If it's recent or current information, and if it's very specific to your company. I mean, those are the four factors that will kind of raise alarm bells if you're either getting that kind of information from your competitors or you're providing it. Um, and so that's something to always keep in mind, whatever the scenario is in which you know, you're, you're talking to your competitors. Can we talk about pricing for a minute? Because pricing sure. is a it's really a several different things coming into play. It's doing perhaps market research. It's getting an understanding of the amount of work that something takes. There are a lot of things that go into making pricing decisions. Is the restriction just around the ultimate price that's set, or could it be relating to those components that go into making a pricing decision? Sure, that's a really good question, and it's something I think people don't realize when they think about this issue. They think, oh, I sh- maybe I shouldn't just disclose the price that mm-hmm. we're setting. But price can include a lot of things. It can include the costs that are going, you know, underlying the price that the company might arrive at, you know, production abilities. Um, there's all kinds of inputs and related factors to price um, that could be considered competitively sensitive. And I think when a good rule of thumb when you're looking, you know, you're thinking about a type of information and trying to figure out if it's competitively sensitive, think about whether your company, you know, would change its decision making around that piece of information, even if it's in a small or, or subtle way. Would it affect the decisions that they make out there in the competitive landscape? And if so, that's probably a sensitive piece of information that you shouldn't rush to disclose uh, without a good reason. So a lot of this seems very subjective and that there's a lot of kind of reasoning that you have to do in order to decide if what you're doing is inappropriate or not. How do the agencies draw the line? What weighs in your favor or against you when they're doing that analysis? Are there specific industries they're paying closer attention to? Is there an intent factor? Like, What are the things that weigh against a company that might have engaged in some of this behavior? Sure. So the two federal antitrust agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, as, as you're alluding to, are, are fairly active in you know, enforcing the antitrust laws in this area um, and making sure that competitors aren't inappropriately exchanging information. And there's, to set the scene a little bit, there's two ways that they enforce the antitrust laws in this area. The first way is that exchanging information with your competitors can be a violation just by itself, you know, without anything else, if it's harming competition in some way. So they will apply what's called the rule of reason in antitrust law and, and balance you know, the potential benefits of that information exchange against the potential harms. But the second risk that you face as a company, if, if you're engaging in inappropriate communications with your competitors, it's much more rare, but it's a much more serious scenario in which some kind of information exchange can become corroborating evidence of a price-fixing conspiracy. And price-fixing conspiracies, you know, that can lead to criminal liability and some very serious consequences for the company. So those are the two scenarios that the agencies will be looking at. We talk about them a little bit differently. But in general, when they're looking at information exchanges, they will be looking, as I was alluding to earlier, at the type of information that's being exchanged, how sensitive is it really. They'll be looking at the quantity of information that's being exchanged, how frequently it's being exchanged, um, what is the party's intent. You know, maybe they're exchanging information as part of a joint venture and they really need 
to do it um, in order to accomplish the aims of the joint venture in a way that's going to help customers. So that's, you know, that's okay. The agencies will also look at, you know, the industry structure. If there's only a few competitors and they're talking to each other a lot, that could be a problem. And another important factor is, are there safeguards in place around you know, the exchange of information. So that would be my, perhaps a compliance policy within one of the organizations or what kind of safeguards? Like More safeguards, safeguards around, you know, whatever the actual information exchange is. You know, say, for example, what's happening is the companies are all participating in an industry-wide survey mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, their cybersecurity practices. That's something that could actually have some real benefits. Uh, maybe they'll be sharing best practices in a way that everyone can benefit from. The safeguards that you would want to have in place are, you, you know, you want to have a third party managing that information exchange. You want the data to be anonymous. Um, you just want to have the process managed under the guidance of counsel, I should add, um, in a way that really minimizes the risk. So that's something else that the agencies will look at when they're evaluating this kind of conduct. So let's talk for a minute about the more serious allegation of price fixing. It sounds like a very serious allegation. And it, it seems like the kind of thing that if you're doing it, you know that you're doing it. Is there a way that someone might be engaged in that kind of conduct but not realize it? You can certainly get caught up in a price-fixing investigation inadvertently. I mean, I think that's kind of the nightmare scenario for companies when you're thinking about information exchanges and contacts with your competitors. And say, for example, you have a company it's minding its own business, it's competing on the merits, it's doing everything it's supposed to be doing, but little does the company know, you know, all of its competitors are actually in a price-fixing cartel together. So the Department of Justice starts to investigate that cartel, comes looking at the company's documents, and, you know, discovers that employees are having lunch with the employees of competitors. They look at the calendars, and there's all these meetings between, you know, the employees of, of the different competitors. Well, even though those meetings and those lunches might have been perfectly innocent, suddenly the DOJ is going to have a lot more questions. So you've then been brought into something unnecessarily that could have very serious consequences. And let's say you have a relationship like that with someone based on perhaps going back to the trade association, people who do the same thing, like to talk to other people who do the same thing as they do. How can you support your innocence, I guess, that this is just a very innocent relationship. We were talking about X, Y, and Z. Does that mean that every time I go to lunch with someone who does what I do, there might be a danger of talking about that? I have to document what we've talked about at that lunch? I mean, you have to be, we live in the real world. You have to be realistic always, you know, in the advice that you give your employees and what you do to minimize risk. I think the key is really just to minimize to the extent possible, those kinds of interactions. I mean, unless it's your best friend and you really need to be having lunch with them every week, you know, the less that you unnecessarily talk with employees of of your competitors, the better. Um, It's just going to lower the chance that that something gets misinterpreted. And, you know, as always, lawyers are always saying this to their clients, you know, watch what you put in writing. Ambiguous emails can create all kinds of trouble from an antitrust perspective. So to the extent that you can be sort of specific about what you're talking about and minimize unnecessary conversations, I think that will benefit the company from an antitrust perspective. So there are a lot of trade associations for a large number of industries. And it seems like those associations and the meetings that they have are ripe opportunities for antitrust violations. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that and how to balance that danger with the benefits of a trade association? Sure. Um, Trade associations and 
their meetings certainly keep plenty of antitrust lawyers up at night um, because you have a whole bunch of competitors getting together and talking, which can lead to violations, as you noted. Um, and there are plenty of examples of particularly the Federal Trade Commission bringing enforcement actions against conduct that arises out of trade association activity. I want to be clear that you know the vast, vast majority of trade associations and their meetings and their conferences you know, go off without a hitch. I mean, it's not that there are government agents hiding in the bushes, you know, waiting to arrest people <laughs> on their way to lunch. But, you know, there are opportunities, as you said, for conversations to go in a direction where you may start talking about information or sharing information that you shouldn't be, or that the association may decide to conduct a survey that doesn't have the appropriate safeguards and things of that nature. So I think the ideal is, you know, from a compliance perspective, for training your employees, you just ideally want to make sure that the employees are, are aware of the parameters of what they should and shouldn't be talking about before they go to those meetings. Um, and if there are any questions that arise while they're there, to know that they should call, you know, the company attorney and get some guidance. So if I'm an attorney advising someone, I'm either working with the compliance guidelines or not, what should I tell my employees to make sure they do or don't do at that trade association meeting? Sure. The bottom line is, you know, minimize your interactions to the extent you can. I mean, you have to be realistic. The point of these meetings oftentimes is to network, to talk to people, to share information. But, you know, be cognizant of not sharing sensitive information, non-public information, you know, very company-specific information. Try to keep things at a high level. If you feel uncomfortable with the direction that a conversation is going in, you know, try to get out of that conversation or, or leave the meeting as soon as you can. You know, don't create a situation where a judge or a government enforcer might misunderstand what took place. I read somewhere that people are supposed to loudly announce that they're leaving the meeting because yeah. they're uncomfortable right. with the conversation. That's Does that classic, actually happen? Right. I mean, that's a classic <laughs> example where sometimes antitrust advice can have, be a little disconnected from the way the world works. I mean, that is the classic antitrust advice in that situation. You know, if you're in a meeting, stand up, shout, you know, I disapprove <laughs> and then and walk out the door. I mean, who really is going to do that? no one or very few people. I think the more realistic advice to give, you know, especially if you're not sure if the conversation is appropriate or inappropriate, is you know, try to leave as soon as you can. Call your lawyer, the company's lawyer, as soon as you can to get some advice. You really can't expect people to, to create a big ruckus in front of all of their peers. Um, it is a little unrealistic. Okay. Now, one of the documents I came across on Practical Law was one that looked like it was intended to be given to business people who are attending a meeting. Now, I've been to hundreds, literally hundreds of conferences <laughs> over time, and I've never seen anything like this. I've never been asked to sign anything like this. Do people actually use documents like that? <laughs> they do. And, you know, sometimes it depends on the type of conference that an employee is attending. Sometimes it depends on the type of employee. I mean, certain employees certainly high-level executives or people that have a lot of um, decision-making authority over prices. It's a bit more sensitive for them, you know, if they're going to be going out and talking to competitors. So they might be more likely asked to review a document, including antitrust guidelines, before they go to a conference. However, it's never a bad idea for any company to remind its employees as often as possible before you go off to a trade association meeting or, or anything where you're going to be interacting with competitors, you know, to stop and remind them about what the antitrust rules are, just so you have those in the back of your mind 
if you happen to run into, you know, a friend who works at a competitor, even if not a friend and you're just chatting, you know, with people during the breaks. What role does the level of seniority play in that determination? It is very important. You know, when we're talking about reviewing the antitrust agencies or even in a private lawsuit, when you're talking about evaluating whether an information exchange has crossed the line and become an antitrust violation, you know, factual context is very, very important. And so, as you might imagine, you know, the higher level employees or employees that have more direct responsibility over pricing and competitive decisions, they're going to raise more concerns. I mean, there is, um, you know, there's always accommodation for the factual context in this area. So we talked a little bit about the realism or lack of realism of some of the guidelines. Let's move to within a company, there are sales and marketing people who might get information all the time about what their competitors are doing, and they may actively seek that out as part of their jobs. What are the guidelines there that we need to be aware of or that attorneys should be talking to their clients about? Sure. You've hit upon a very important area of competition, really. I mean, this is a classic example of, of conduct that, if it's done the right way, we want to be encouraging. You know, we want companies to be trying to stay a step ahead of their competitors, to understand what their competitors are doing so that they can be better. So that's the pro-competitive Right. I mean, that's, that's what competition uh, mm-hmm. is. The danger comes in largely when it comes to um, competitive intelligence gathering on, on what is the source of the information. I mean, the number one rule is don't ever ever call your competitor and ask them <laughs> what they're doing. I mean, you just don't want any kind of direct, unsupervised communications between two competitors. So when you say, you mentioned a couple of things, you said direct and you said unsupervised. What is unsupervised and what is direct? So for example, if I use an intermediary, I contract with a company to find out something and then they call my competitor. Sure. So, you know, you might have very good reasons that you want to find out information about what your competitors and what the industry as a whole is doing. You know, maybe the industry is facing a lot of problems with fraud and you all need to come together or it would be beneficial if you could all come together and find a way to combat that. That's just one scenario that comes to mind. There's plenty. The reason I said unsupervised is because, you know, the antitrust laws are flexible enough to allow companies to do that if there's a good pro-competitive reason to do it. But it should be under the guidance of, of counsel to make sure that, you know, those safeguards we were talking about earlier are in place. And in general, what gets looked favorably upon um, from an antitrust perspective is if you have a third party that's sort of managing that exchange. So instead of companies just directly sending each other all their information, you're going to have a neutral third party who collects the raw data, filters it down so only the competitively benign information is getting shared. It's anonymous, you know, it's it's aggregated, all of those kinds of things to make sure that, that nothing inappropriate is taking place. So can that third party be the trade association or is that not seen as neutral? It ideally shouldn't be. I mean, unless it's somebody that's really not participating in the industry themselves. So there's an association management company, for example, that manages a trade association that might be okay versus a member-managed association? Exactly. Okay. And then just to go back to the actual sales information and the pricing information that I as a marketer or a salesperson as a salesperson wants to know, they specifically want to know that information that is sensitive and is specific. What are the rules around gathering that information? So in general, 
if the information is coming from a third party, you probably maybe are okay. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the gray areas we right. were talking about. <laughs> but there's plenty of caveats that I could put around that. I think at the end of the day, the advice that you should give your salespeople, your marketing staff, is don't go out looking for non-public information from customers, from third parties. Use public sources or let those you know, entities, your customer, whoever, let them volunteer the information to you. I mean, that's a much safer way to do it. You can think of the example, you know, if you have a salesperson who's negotiating a price with a customer and you offer a price to the customer, $10 for your widget that you sell, and the customer comes back to you and says, well, your competitor down the street offered me $9. Well, that's that seems pretty pro-competitive. They volunteer the information and they're trying to get a better price out of you. And that's a benefit to the consumer and that should really be okay. But, you know, going back to the example of you don't want to accidentally implicate yourself in a price-fixing conspiracy, it's never a good idea to be really seeking out non-public, competitively sensitive information, regardless of the source, just to minimize the risk that it could be misinterpreted. And as part of that, one thing to tell salespeople or anybody who receives that kind of information, even if it's from, you know, a legitimate source, you should always document you know, on email or whatever it is, make a note of where you got that information from so that if the government happens to see that document one day, they don't think that you got it directly from the competitor. So it sounds like it is okay to pass it on to perhaps a centralized place within your organization, someone who gathers the competitive intelligence, as long as you notate it where you got it from, the source of it, and how you came to get it? Generally speaking, yes. I will go back, I will fall back on my repeated (laughs) phrase that call your company's lawyer (laughs) and ask before you really do anything. I mean, I say that because, you know, this is price-fixing conspiracies, the risk of getting caught up in a price-fixing conspiracy. This is, you know, the absolute nightmare for any company. I mean, the the penalties are so high that you really have to be careful about the risks. And you always want to make sure that whatever you're doing is closely watched by the the people who are legal experts in that area. So I want to touch on another term that you used, and that's public. So what constitutes public information? Um, I mean, really anything that's that's out there in the public sphere, you know, that's maybe a company has reported something in a press release, it's been reported in the media, even you know, even if it was initially non-public information or initially, you know, maybe a journalist got a scoop about something that a company is doing and, and published an article about that, um, that's still public information. It's out there in the public domain. So anything you can get online, right. essentially, even when the company doesn't post it directly, if someone else has put it online, then it constitutes public information. Exactly. And then that's getting back to the issue of, you know, what is the source of the sensitive information. I mean, the main concern when you're thinking about competitor communications and these information exchanges is you don't want two competitors, you know, agreeing with each other, you know, to come together and and hurt competition in some way. So if you're getting the information from a public source, from Google, from the New York Times, from your customer, there's less of a risk there that there's, you know, an agreement between two competitors because the other competitor is not really involved in that relay of information. Speaking about competitive analysis, let me give you a hypothetical situation. Everyone is always looking to find out what their competitors are doing in terms of their sales price process, in terms of pricing, et cetera. And sometimes people hire a third party in order to conduct that analysis. What kind of culpability would the hiring company have for the consultant's 
potential misrepresentation in terms of going after that information that might be non-public? Well, I can only answer this from an antitrust perspective. So, you know, in terms of culpability, there may be issues that I'm I'm not necessarily thinking about. Um, and of course, you always want your company and your agents and whoever you hire to be acting, you know, in an ethical way. However, they're maybe gathering the information that you're seeking. I would reiterate, you do always, nonetheless, still have to be careful when you're going out and seeking that information instead of letting it come to you, say, in the context of an actual price negotiation. And would you have to have some kind of agreement up front with that consultant that you might be using in terms of providing kind of a code of conduct or, you know, disclaimer around potential antitrust violations? It's not a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like there are some areas within this competitive intelligence arena that don't really impinge on antitrust at all. So where does antitrust end and something else begins? Like, what are the boundaries of antitrust with respect to gathering competitive intelligence? Sure. I feel like this is the million-dollar question. (laughs) If I could answer this, then you would never need antitrust lawyers anymore. Um, It can be difficult to know where that boundary is. An important factor to consider, you know, one area where antitrust really focuses, at least within the context of what we're talking about today, is, you know, is there some kind of agreement between two competitors that harms competition? So when you have more of an exchange of information or the coming together of, you know, the competitors are actually directly in contact with each other, that obviously is an area where antitrust is going to have something to say. When you're talking about you know, collecting market intelligence as we are, where you may not be directly interacting with a competitor, you're just sort of minding your own business and trying to find information on your own, that, you know, is more of a difficult question whether you're going to accidentally violate the antitrust laws in doing that. In antitrust, it always comes down to, unless you're talking about cartels and price fixing, but outside of that, it really comes down to harm to competition. Um, And you have to take a step back and think about, you know, am I doing something that is going to, you know, raise prices higher than they otherwise would have been? reduce output, you know, I'm going to produce less than I would have otherwise. It's a difficult question to answer, um, and that's why there are antitrust lawyers, but that is often the, the sort of the bottom line. So the FTC and DOJ recently released guidance for HR professionals on naked wage fixing <laughs> and no poaching agreements. First of all, what is naked wage fixing? And secondly, is this a new rule or a new requirement? Sure. It sounds much more exciting than it is, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, Naked wage fixing agreements, uh, or any, when you're talking about any kind of naked (laughs) agreement in antitrust, you're talking about, you know, hardcore violations where there's no pro-competitive benefit. You're literally talking about a competitor calling up another competitor and saying, in this case, let's agree we're not going to pay more than $50,000 to our employees going forward. That's just an agreement to fix wages. So the naked part is that direct communication. Exactly. There's no kind of ambiguity about about what's going on. Um, and the reason that's important is because the Department of Justice, which has the power to criminally prosecute antitrust violations, they reserve that criminal power for only the most serious violations, which is price fixing, rigging bids, 
and, and things like that that are no one questions that those are very serious antitrust violations. So as for whether this is a, a new rule, it really isn't. The new guidance that was aimed at these HR professionals is is restating, you know, the law that's that's always been out there. Um, but what is new is the DOJ is saying that they're willing to prosecute wage fixing agreements criminally, which in the past they have not done that. And it's also, I think, an announcement by the agencies you know, putting companies on notice that they, they need to realize that employment is a marketplace as well. And you compete for employees just the way that you compete to sell your products and services. And you need to realize that the antitrust laws apply there just as much as they do in other contexts. So as an attorney advising companies, you would recommend highly that they take a look at what they're doing to train HR people, I would imagine. Absolutely. Okay. Now, one of the pieces of guidance that came along with that is that companies are not supposed to receive documents that talk about employee compensation. However, every job I've ever applied for, they've asked what my compensation is. What's the disconnect there? Well, I mean, this is, again, where factual context can be very important in the antitrust world. First, in that scenario, you know, the information is coming from the job candidate and not from a competitor. So already that reduces the risk that there's some kind of anti-competitive intent going on. And also, you know, asking a single job candidate for their salary information on a one-off basis, you can think that, you know, it's it's probably hard to make the case that that's going to really have a significant effect on the salaries that are being paid within a specific market. Really, the government's going to be looking at the exchange of more comprehensive information. So when it says don't receive documents that contain your competitor's salary information, I think really that's directed at a higher volume of information than just asking you know, a single job candidate what their previous salary was. I will say, outside the antitrust context, that is an issue that is being looked at more and more. I mean, this is getting more into labor and employment, mm-hmm. uh, but I think some states are starting to ban that practice and things like that. So you never know. And raises a good point that you should never just stop with the antitrust laws. There's all kinds of, especially state laws, that can be very important when you're evaluating competitive conduct. Maybe a topic for another podcast. Maybe. So one of the criteria for finding a violation is that it's unrelated or unnecessary to the larger legitimate collaboration. And that sounds like a merger. In the context of a merger, it would be fine, or an integration, it would be fine. But what's a scenario where it might be more doubtful? You've struck on an important aspect of information exchanges again, which is, you know, there are a lot of legitimate reasons to be exchanging information with your competitors. As you said, it could be um, in the context of a merger, you're doing due diligence, there's a certain amount of information exchange that, that needs to take place. You know, we're talking about wages right now, it could be, you know, salary information needs to be exchanged. The danger zones appear when you've got collaborations between competitors. If the collaboration looks like a pretext to exchange information, um, you can't just, you know, exchange price information and say, oh, don't worry, we're a joint venture, you can leave us alone. I mean, the government is not really going to buy that. The danger also appears if the information that you're exchanging doesn't seem to really relate to the, the purpose of the collaboration, that will raise red flags. And of course, if you're exchanging far more information than is really necessary to achieve, you know, whatever goals you've set out for yourself for that collaboration. Okay. So Janelle, we're running out of time and I want to make sure that our audience has some really clean takeaways from what we've talked about because we've covered a lot of ground during this conversation. Can you just talk about first the top trouble areas when communicating with competitors? 
Sure. So the some of the main areas where I think close scrutiny is warranted, where ideally attorneys should be involved, as we've discussed a little bit, trade association activities. I would also say, you know, joint ventures or any kind of collaboration uh, with competitors, making sure there's appropriate safeguards um, and oversight of that. And the last thing I would mention, uh, which we've also discussed a little bit, is, you know, salespeople, marketing teams, certainly any employees that have any kind of control over prices, you know, really making sure that they're adequately trained about what they can and cannot do and that they have um, the appropriate contact information if they have questions. Okay. And we'll have two more clean takeaways. The first one is what are the top three non-obvious don'ts when communicating? Top three non-obvious don'ts. I would say, first of all, don't think that prices are the only things that you can't talk about with your competitors. As we discussed a little bit, salaries, employee benefits, you know, your costs, maybe new products that you have coming out. There's a whole world of sensitive information that, that you should be careful about sharing too widely. Uh, I would also say, you know, don't go out looking for competitive intelligence, um, especially pricing information, certainly w- without the guidance of, of counsel from your customers or other third parties, to the extent possible, you should let that information be volunteered to you, if at all. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I would say, you know, don't be paranoid. It's always important to, uh, it's hard, but it's always important to to couch antitrust advice in the real world. Um, So don't be paranoid, but do be prudent. Um, And if you're ever in doubt, you know, look at your company's policy, uh, which I, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but sometimes company policies can be much more conservative than what the law allows you to do. So don't take my word for it. <laughs> Listening to this <laughs> podcast, you should always, you know, read your policies, talk to your company's lawyer. Okay. So Janelle, we like to wrap up our show with a question on advice. What is the best advice you didn't take that you wished you had? <laughs> um, I think the best advice that I unfortunately ignored uh, was to wear sunscreen in my youth, (laughs) which I did not do. And as you can see, I'm covered in freckles. So um, I probably should have listened to my mother on that one. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Janelle Wrigley, Managing Editor of the Practical Law Antitrust Service. This concludes another episode of Thompson Reuters Down the Hall with Practical Law. If you've liked what you heard today, please consider rating and reviewing the show and subscribing in iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both Thomson Reuters Practical Law and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network and Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Thomson Reuters, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.